You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey everybody, Kent Davenport here. Before we get to this week's podcast, if you're listening to this on iTunes, hey, do me a favor, give us a big five-star rating, will you? Let's spread the word about theater and all these awesome guests. Thanks so much. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, Producers Perspective podcast listeners. Welcome back. I am Ken Davenport. We've got another first here on the podcast today. The first time we've ever had two, two, two guests for the price of one. <laughs> I'm proud to welcome to the podcast the Tony and Emmy-nominated songwriting team of Pasek and Paul. Welcome, guys. Hey, Hello. thank you. So I've been lucky enough to have some incredible musical theater legends on this podcast, from Tim Rice to Lynn Aarons to Stephen Schwartz, and I thought it was time to get some new blood up in here. So, uh, Benj and Justin have been called the next generation of musical theater songwriting superstars by just about every publication out there. Uh, but it's hard to think of them as rookies considering they already have a Tony nomination on the wall for A Christmas Story. They've written for Smash. They had Dogfight off-Broadway at Second Stage. And this year they're going back to Second Stage with the highly anticipated Dear Evan Hansen. So, guys, I'm going to start with a big question. Uh-oh. When Time Out New York says you will shape the future of the theater, <laughs> or Vanity Fair oh, says oh. you're the heirs of Rogers and Hammerstein. It gives my mom a lot of ammunition <laughs> at her synagogue. Yes. Yes. And we text Lynn Manuel and say, it's on you, bro. <laughs> so seriously, what does it feel like when you read this stuff? Is it a lot of pressure? Does it make you feel good? Um, I don't know. I, don't, I think we try to not think about it because I... I think if we do think about it, she, it definitely is a lot of pressure. Um, it, obviously, it's so nice that, uh, you know, at least a couple of people with pens uh, believe that. But <laughs> I think that we, um, you know, we're, we are excited to be... You talked about some of the other people who have been on this podcast, and I think that we feel very honored to be part of, you know, the generation of writers that we're in and to be in this sort of uh, history of writers, some of whom you mentioned. When Aaron's, for instance, was our one of our mentors, and so... Uh, I think we feel very tiny in this world of great writers, and so uh, that's how I feel. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we had a we had a, a professor. We went to University of Michigan, is where we met, and uh, we had a professor there who told us like, if you believe anything good about you, you have to believe everything bad right. about you too. And there have been lots of things that people have said that have been terrible about us. Yeah. I remember I used to read things online, like someone called us "past suck" and "appalling" once. I was like, oh, <laughs> "That's gonna stick." Creative, so you know, very creative, pretty creative. That lyricist must have come up with that one. <laughs> so I think you know we kind of have adopted the philosophy that like it's really nice if if people like what we do and other people. 
flavor we're we do. Not like it, yeah. And like, you know, we kind of just have to figure out for ourselves whether we like it or not. And uh, and that's really the barometer. Um, and just try to hold hold to that. Yeah. Okay, so now we'll, we'll go back to the easy questions. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. At the beginning, Ken said, he basically like, I'm going to give you some nice, easy questions to start, and then you just really threw a fast response curveball there. I'm like Borat. Ali <laughs> G. Uh, so you, you mentioned where you met. Tell, tell me the story of how you guys found each other. Yeah, we, uh, we met. Uh, at, we went to the University of Michigan, uh, and we went as musical theater majors. So we were aspiring Broadway performers yes. when we started college. And we became really good friends because we were the two worst uh, members of the University of Michigan, uh, certainly uh, the musical theater department in dance classes in particular. So we are really not uh, very coordinated guys. And we didn't really know that we should have taken, you know, any kind of dance class yeah, before we, we got there. Yeah, we were the two people who didn't realize, like, that was like... I just didn't know that, like, dance class is particularly not to be whatever about it, but, like, I didn't know that, like, there were a lot of guys that took dance class, like, growing up. And we got to school, and there were all these amazing dudes who were, like, yeah. leaping across the floor. And I was like, we're like, wait a second. <laughs> well, they all showed up the first day, like, in tights, in tights and we were, like, in, like, sweats, sweats and, and, and we're like, oh, this, this is, is a problem. Yeah. Um, we kind of, we became friends because we would, like, hide behind each other when we had to do the across the floors. And we couldn't remember any of the terms, like, the pot of shahs, like, uh, the cat yeah, one, and the shavals, and whatever. So we just, we would like know when to leap by sort of whispering to each other while hiding behind each other run a little bit run a little bit and then just jump and just like fly into the air and uh, hope that you know we would like catch each other when we fell that's, that's <laughs> so yeah so we, we were we were in the musical theater program there and then we became friends that way and then uh, we sort of started just sort of messing around writing, not really intending to do anything. Um, our, our freshman year. Yeah, our freshman year, and we were sort of, you know, there's all the practice rooms at college, and so we, like, it always sometimes turns into a sing-along with all the musical theater majors. A lot of seasons of love happening, a lot of riffs. Yeah, yeah, just a lot of unnecessary riffing happening. Yeah. But um, we sort of started writing by accident, just a couple of things together, and then our sophomore year, we sort of decided, well, you know what it was, is our sophomore year, we... We were rising, you know, it's like, okay, here's going to be the moment. It was our second semester of sophomore year. We're like, we're going to start getting some roles. We're going to start like you know, becoming the performers that we're meant to be. <laughs> and uh, the second semester of our sophomore year, the show was City of Angels, our school show. And we were like, okay, we're going to, like, let's see what happens. And we both got cast as, like, terrible roles. I got cast as the man with camera. That was my actual role. So I came on stage and I took a photograph. And then I left. And Justin was cast as Harlan Yamato, the Asian backup dancer slash coroner. So it was like our for, moms were flying and out. And for all you who are just listening, which oh, is everyone, this is a... Uh, Justin this looks is like... This is not a... This is not I say this as a nice Jewish boy. He looks like an Aryan and it's sometimes <laughs> very scary. So he should not be playing an Asian backup dancer slash coroner. Yes, yes. This is, it was a different age. Yes, uh, but um, Michigan's so white now. Yeah, oh, right. watch out! Hashtag, watch exactly, out. exactly, exactly. So, um, so at that moment, we were like, okay, let's maybe reevaluate some things here, and uh, we decided to write a show because we thought, well, that's something that we could do, and maybe we'll be better at, maybe not, but we'll give it a try. Certainly so, than dancing, yeah, yeah, certainly than dancing. So we, so we wrote a song cycle because that was sort of like the thing to do at that time because every you know revered composer had written a song cycle so we were like we'll write our song cycle so we wrote a show called edges that was uh, uh in college and uh and everything sort of started from there yeah so you sit down you write a song cycle well it's like that easy you know it was it was it was it was songs most of the songs in that show in that review um are sort of 
all thematically linked to really general things like who am I, who, I, who do I want to be. It's like all the very overly dramatic things you're grappling with, but they're very real to you at the time as a as 19, 19 or 20-year-old, yeah. which is like, you know, what kind of person am I? Everyone breaking up, having relationship woes. We're just looking at our friends and basically putting them in song, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but I think the way that we approached it too is because we were studying as actors, and this is the way that I think we sort of got into it, we were taking classes about what makes a song theatrical. So we were learning the basics of what an actor needs to use to approach uh, material. So like the basics of who it's am I talking to? Stuff, yeah. like, who am I talking to in the song? What do I want? What are the different tactics that I'm going to employ? And so we thought, okay, well, if we were to bring a song that we wrote into our acting class... Our right? acting teacher would ask us those things. So, so how do we do it in reverse? How do we put those things into the song when we start and make it really easy for actors to approach it? And so I think our our acting training, in particular, our acting through song in Michigan... That was our access point. Yeah, it's how we sort of began writing. What was the first song that you wrote together? Do you remember um, uh, <laughs> well, the first one for this, the first one is uh, this random song called Classical Prose, which is like a pop song, and, uh, and, we, and it's crazy. But the first song that we ever wrote that was theatrical, it's almost sort of as a joke, uh, the lyric initially, because we were like, you know, all of these songs that like, like, like young guys at auditions sing, it's all just like about like, you know, boys with dreams, you know, let's just write a song like about like a boy with dreams. And so we called the song Boy with Dreams. Like, <laughs> okay. Like, like that's sort of like, like the, the sort of like template sort of title of, the, of that sort of song. We just literally wrote a song called that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's about a, a boy who's like, uh, an aspiring Working in a rural town at a pizza, at a pizza hut who wants to be an inventor. Yeah. yeah. And that was the first song that we wrote that was theatrically minded. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the process when, whether it's then or mm-hmm. now, when you guys okay, I've come up with an idea. It's boy with dreams, <laughs> or maybe who does yeah, who does what? Who does what first? How does that? Do you do it all together? Um, I mean, it's it's sort of a it's I think a big part of our process at least is, uh, I mean, you know, it does evolve and it keeps evolving and it has evolved. But, uh, or devolved. Or devolved, or however, yeah. It's changed in some way, for better words. But, uh, you know, we, we start by talking about, by talking a lot. It's really a big discussion about what the song wants to be, what the song wants to accomplish, what the character is saying. Um, and then often, like, a musical impulse, a style, a, an energy or a rhythm will come out of that. But a lot of it is the discussion of what the what the moment wants to be and what the what the big theme is is there is there a hook phrase is there a hook idea that that can take us through the whole journey of the song we think of it a lot almost like a five paragraph essay that you had to write in high school like what is your thesis statement because that's what your chorus has to come back to that helps to support this one idea to make it something that sort of sticks in your head um so we find what is the phrase or what is the thesis statement that can be a unique enough angle that we can keep coming back to again and again and approach from you know, from different angles. Right. And then from there, then like maybe I'll start working on a musical idea, a way to musicalize that. Sometimes we'll just start with a chorus idea and get that and then work backwards. Or we'll, the only way in is just to go chronologically through the song and start it where it wants to start and then write it as we go. Yeah, sometimes we write songs together in the room. Sometimes we divvy up and like I'll work on a lyric separately and then I'll send it to him or he'll work on music separately. And but we try to, be as intertwined as possible so that it feels as much uh, as one voice. As yeah, possible. I mean, what we're doing, there's a lot of strengths to being in a team, but like ultimately we're trying to do one person's job, really, which is like conceive a song because it's not music and lyrics, it's like a song. So, like, we're trying to get as close to, you know, the, one creative impulse as possible, which is like the music and the lyrics 
happen together. They're of the same voice, and so that's what we're trying to work toward. And a lot of great songwriters talk about this, you know, particularly like Sondheim in his book. Like you can't have lyric, you can't have a lyric without music. It's not, it's not just that you're reading it independently. So, so much of what we would write is dependent on what the musical impulse is going to be, or so much of the musical impulse is going to be dependent on what the, you know, the lyric would say. So it really is a, a fine marriage in the way that both have to support each other and. Um, and yeah, we, we really try to write it with one voice. So you write this song cycle, and <laughs> and I remember hearing about it myself, even here, thousands of miles away from or thousand or whatever miles away from Michigan. How did you get the attention for it that you did? What so you finish it? and You're like, hey, we wrote a song cycle. <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. then what was your input? We were really lucky in that it's sort of like the Malcolm Gladwell Outliers book, uh, where he mm-hmm. talks about just timing is everything uh, for, for certain things to be able to uh, have nice lives and for us this Edges show and for our careers we were, we were very lucky because we wrote this in 2005 when we were sophomores in college and that was a year after Facebook had just come out and the year that YouTube had come out and so we were able to have this material that was really about being a 19 or 20 year old at the time and we were able to connect with other 19, 20, 21 year olds who were still in college. And for the first time, without needing to have a production anywhere else in the world, you could immediately have access to or see material right away digitally. So I wouldn't need to necessarily put up a show in New York and then wait for a cast album to be created. And then a few months or years later, it gets disseminated. Yeah. I can write a song right away and have a 19-year-old hear that song at Carnegie Mellon or at Boston Conservatory right. or I mean, the way it happened Webster University. Is people at other schools that we were connected to through friends said, oh, you know, we, were, we recorded a CD. That was like the important thing. We got a little bit of money donated from some supporters of the musical theater program there and, and recorded a CD. Uh, with our cast at school and that got around to a few other schools and they said hey could we do the show at our school but we were like whoa that's a crazy concept (laughs) but part of that also was because at the time you could look at other musical theater majors uh, who you could see college majors on facebook so we would look up who was a musical theater major at carnegie Mellon. i think that was that sort of came from first a few other schools said we like we would love to do this and then we were like oh so maybe other musical theaters schools would be interested in this so then we were able to reach out on facebook and we would literally just time. write people at Boston Conservatory or wherever it was and say, hey, like, if we have a song cycle. Would you be interested in doing this thing? And from that... Uh, or vice versa, people could reach out to us because right. they heard from their friend at Baldwin Wallace that they did something, they want to do something at Cincinnati. Or, and, you know, so yeah, was, and this sort of new wild west of social uh, connectivity allowed us to connect with the people who might appreciate what we were doing and without any of the lag time of having to have a full production to be able to have it heard for the first time so within a year of us creating this i think we already had maybe something like 20 productions at different colleges by the time that we were juniors and from that i think that's then helped that somehow got got word of that word of that got to new york and so we had someone produce a a cabaret of our songs at joe's pub like you know that whole track of doing stuff joe's pub and ars nova and through connections of Michigan, a lot of them, we had Gavin Creel come and sing songs for us, and Steely Keenan Bolger, and um, uh, who I don't remember who else, but Dan Reichard came. Like you know, a lot of Michigan people, and they bring their friends. So Steve Pasquale came. So it was like it was sort of this like concurrence of events that sort of like led to it us singing like we were doing more than we actually had done. You know what I mean? It's like oh, they must be. We're like we haven't done it. It's just like this. It was a very interesting time for all these things converging. 
well, being able to reach out through Facebook, chat boards happening, you know, all that stuff happening at the same time. And so we were able to, I think, get a little kickstart uh, in New York uh, before coming to live there. Did you realize you were like acting as in, like incredible marketing director for, your, <laughs> for yourself and for your show? When you're like, I'm going to sit down and develop a market. I'm going to write to all these people. I think that we just, you know, thought, well, these people would enjoy it, and you know, like we want the show produced. We weren't really thinking like, how do we market? It wasn't right. that, but it was also like at the that same much time, strategy. Our friends, it, I guess were, it was. our friends were getting, you know, Andrew Keenan Bolger is one of our classmates, uh, and he and another one of our classmates, Jake Wilson, like they were creating online video content, and like it was, and they were putting videos of their dance workshop at school online. And this was like a foreign idea. You know, I mean, it's like kids putting musical theater stuff on YouTube. And, and then developing a web series app from it. Like, it was, they were all doing the same sort of thing. So whatever that idea came from, it sort of caught around right. our friends. And so everybody started putting their stuff online. It was really the first time that was... Well, YouTube was invented in 2005, and we were doing it in 2005. So it was really this very natural, organic uh, way to put the material that we were writing out into the world. Yeah, yeah. And then naturally, other people saw it, and, and it... Disseminate, yeah. Do you think it's as easy for college sophomores today to do the same thing? I think it's not as easy only because there's just a lot more content now. Like now, that's a that's a standard thing. You know what I mean? At that point, it was very novel. Yeah. Now it's like everybody has their songs on YouTube. Everybody has their um, sheet music up for sale. Everybody, you know, like that was uh, that was new now, at the time. Yeah, that, it was very new at the time. So it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, I mean, blessedly, I think now, like. Musical theater, like a wildfire, sort of, it just exists. Like, at that time, it was like the, like, the, it, it felt like the, like, the, the remnants, you know, of people who were, like, survived the, uh, you know, there's the, the old members of the church who, like, held on to, you know what I mean? And they're like, we're here, yes, we're out here. Oh, you're putting stuff online? Like, yes, we want that, we want that. Now it's like, awesomely, everyone around the country has access to it and there's ever since since then there's been glee there's been all the live musicals i mean now it's sort of a mainstream thing which is great it probably makes it harder for like someone to emerge from all of that because there's a lot more content yeah but it's but i, but I will it's, say it's good for all of us compared ultimately. to what i imagine uh, living in new york or trying to emerge here would be would have been 15 years ago there's more of a democratization you know that I don't necessarily need a producer to approve and give me a production here in New York to get my material heard. So it really, I think, I think that writers, a right to have a, a if you want, if you want that production. Right. But ultimately, I think that writers can view themselves more as entrepreneurs than they ever were able to before, and they almost have to to be able to launch themselves because they're competing with other people that are acting as entrepreneurs, and that's the way that you know you initially will launch. So. Thinking in that way, I think, is, has been very beneficial and all, now becomes sort of necessary, I think, as new music theater writers. It's a very Ken Davenport conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I right? asked the question. <laughs> it's obviously true. I mean, it's one of the reasons I wanted you guys on the show. It's, I'm a big believer that artists need to think like entrepreneurs, yeah. whether they know they're thinking like entrepreneurs. Right, I mean, right. you, you two are a very unique group because you have it naturally within you I mean that's why I asked that question you didn't know you were marketing but that's exactly what you were doing you right. were acting as the CMO of your <laughs> right. partnership which is which is really incredible so you get here you, you've made you know a name for yourself before you even get here you get here and then what was the first 
show? Was it uh, James and Giant Peach that you did first? Was it Christmas Carol that you were attached to first? Which we did. Um, those were sort of back to back. We the first, yeah. I mean, well, I'll say I'll say when we first got here, we thought because we had already written a song cycle, people were going to hire us for jobs, and so we were like, oh well, you know, we would have these meetings. You know, we had an agent. It was and, awesome. We, had, we got an agent. Right. We came to the city. We were like, okay, every the you know the, the path is clear, <laughs> and we would go on these meetings with people who wanted to have like a general meeting. Nice to meet you, and they were like, okay, so you know what show are you? We talk about shows, and we were like, we have one. It's this song cycle, and and are you going to hire us to write your next one? And they were like, no, that's <laughs> just not how it works. And so I think we were waiting a long time, even though we had sort of been uh, we had sort of been entrepreneurial early on when we first got here. We were waiting for people to give us opportunities, right. and um, that sort of yielded very little <laughs> for us. Yeah. And so we had to, I think, then begin to initiate uh, initiate yeah, things projects. again. And, um, you know, as soon as we then started to write things, then other things did come to us. But, like, it took us being, like, we need to create a project ourselves. And that's that was when we started writing Dogfight. But the first thing that sort of happened, in, I think, in order of, I think the chronology was that James the Giant Peach was the first thing that we ever did. It was produced first. It was produced first. Certainly. And it was, that was back-to-back in the fall with that and then Christmas Story. This was in 2010. Yeah. Even though we had started Dogfight in 2008. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, yeah, James the Giant Peach happened at Good Speed Opera House and it was a total disaster. Um, and then <laughs> it was our uh, first time ever having a professional show, yeah. and, and it was it, we did not know what we were doing. Yeah, um, and it, it, it reflected it on stage. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was it was it was like you know it was it was a good hard first lesson to learn, and like everybody has to be making the same show, and then to have all those conversations beforehand, and it was a lot of crazy wacky events um, that led to it just not you know having the success we hoped it would have. You know, thankfully, or you know. We, we sort of were able to jump right from there to Christmas Story, which was happening in, in Seattle at the Fifth Avenue, and that was sort of the first step on that show's path. And since then, James and Jane Peach, we have gone back and retooled it and, yeah. and uh, refocused it, and we're really happy with it now. But the first production of it was left more to be desired. Yes. And what do you think if you could say like one thing you would do differently about James and the Giant Peach? What's the one thing that you think? You I think do? we needed more time uh, in development before we put it up in front of an audience, yeah. and and you know it, we didn't really realize how difficult it would be to change things once a show has already been teched and is already even if it's on in stage. a preview process when it's already on stage, it's very very difficult to you know cut half of a song out or you know there can be entire transitions that you're like oh well this character should enter oh well that character can't because they're already getting ready for the tap number in act two so they have to put tap shoes on during that time you know if you think that out further in advance yeah, it's just like make really careful planning beforehand yeah um, and i think also with james the giant peach it was like there were a bunch of amazing ingredients that were going into it that all sounded amazing but like I don't think we ever stopped to think about how did they all agree and did they speak were they all speaking the same language so I think it was a good lesson in being like just just because something sounds like it's going to be amazing like you have to really think about like do are, they, are these all working in tandem and working yeah. together to create the same show and I also think you know we worked it was actually a fantastic experience we worked with Palabolos on James and the Giant Peach and Graziella Danielle Graziella Danielle it was like an amazing first group of people and, and Tim McDonald great uh, playwright um, but I think that sometimes we would sort of excuse not thinking through 
what should be dramatically happening in a moment because we thought, well, Palabolus is magical. They'll make that <laughs> moment magical. You know what I mean? Without being like, well, how are we going to tell them what, to what make are we that doing? Magical? What are we doing? And I think we, we would rely on other people's abilities sometimes and not give ourselves enough responsibility in storytelling. Um, so we, In truth, we didn't know what we were doing. You yeah. know what I mean? so, but thank God we went through that experience because we learned a lot. Right, exactly. Well, it's very honest for you to admit that. <laughs> and so you obviously learned a lot from that, and you take it to a Christmas story. Now, was, uh, a Christmas story, was it originally designed to go to Broadway? Did no. You? no. no. So what was that like when you and you get that call from the like, hey, guys, well, we're going to go to Broadway this year. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was amazing. I mean, we, we got the – we did Christmas Story in Seattle in 2010, and then it had the – we had the great fortune of having it go uh, on national tour in 2011 – and again, we didn't think that we thought that that would be it, and like it would play these amazing like the Fifth Avenue Theater we studied at the University of Michigan. Like we knew about like the seat capacity. You know what I mean? Like, right. We're like, oh my god, we're at the Fifth Avenue Theater. That was a big enough deal. And then it went to the Chicago Theater, right. and that was a huge deal. And then you know we found out that it was going to go to Broadway, and it was kind of inconceivable for us. Yeah, I mean, it, and I think we no one ever thought it was never designed to do that. Uh, and so it was actually pretty much designed for like licensing. It was yeah. never intended to go to Broadway. So it was huge. I know a lot of it depended on how things went in Chicago and things went well in Chicago. So Chris Jones, they, the, the theater critic, is I will love him for the, yeah. the rest of my life because I really give credit. That yeah, yeah, I know. It's he true. Had I mean, huge the, the, yeah, how audiences and critics respond in Chicago were real. It was really the thing that, because look, it's a huge risk to come to Broadway and, and Christmas Story, for instance, it's like next to him, it's impossible for it to even you know make back its money or anything like that so it was well, really right away, so it was really a, a really a, a, a show of faith and an investment in the future of the property for the producers to bring it because you know playing on Broadway for eight weeks you can, you can never recoup anything it's basically just to cement the property and like you know we never thought it would go to Broadway we certainly didn't think our Christmas show that played for eight weeks that we'd be going to the Tony Awards that year for you know because of that so it, it was uh, you know, well, the journey from how we started. We, yeah. If you if you had met us, if you had seen what we were doing, like when we first started, found out about that job and started writing it, and flash forward to the Tonys, it's pretty hilarious. We were in a production of Edges at Shorter University at the time <laughs> yeah. in Georgia because we were like, oh, like they're doing our show. Yeah. And then, and I think, and embarrassingly, I say this as a gay man, I was we were eating at a Chick Fil A at the right. time when we got the call. That's right. Um, that, that's right. Christmas story that they had hired us for Christmas story, uh, and back then, and we actually, it, I think that it was, it was because we were like foolish enough to do it, but we had to end up writing the entire show by that Christmas. We got this call in March, and they were like, okay, we need. So a we start rehearsals at the end of September. We were like. Cool. Okay. Well, do we're doing it. <laughs> you put down the chicken sandwich. <laughs> that. Let's get to work. Exactly. My first protest at chicken chicken was at that moment. Get out of here. So you you write Change and Dry Peach, a, a Christmas story, and then in the midst of all this, you write Dogfight, yeah. which is something you've been working on for a long time, and now Dear Evan Hansen, which both of them are more difficult, challenging yeah. subject yes. matter. Oh, really, Ken? <laughs> so what? What attracts you to something and says, and I know Dear Evan Hansen is original story of yeah, the world, right? Yeah. And Dogfight was obviously based on a movie, but what makes you, or what gets you attracted to a story and says, oh, this one, this one has to sing. Mm. This is one we want to do. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I, it's hard to figure it out because, like, 
there, there are different things about each one. I'm trying. I'm not sure I can find a theme. Like with with Dogfight and Dear Evan Hansen, it's sort of like against our better judgment in a way. I mean, it's like I don't know why we're drawn to these sort of. I mean, I, I think that they're dark in different ways. And with Dear Evan Hansen, there's a lot of hope and redemption and uh, and and comedy in the show as well. Dogfight is just sort of dark. Well, but I, I tell everyone what Dear Evan Hansen is about. Yeah, it's a little difficult to describe without you know spoiler. <laughs> you know, no spoilers. But it's basically about um, a kid who is is I don't really know how to describe it. It's, a, it's, a, it's about a, a kid who's in a high school and and is very lonely and very isolated and it's a very sort of common thing. I think I think people recognize a lot of. Truth, truth in, to this in, in, kid. In, in, in his character in an overly connected digital world right. where he feels more isolated than than and ever. maybe everyone in the play feels more isolated than ever, although very connected. And um, you know, something happens, uh, sort of a tragedy happens in, in in the school, and there's there's an opportunity for him to seem connected to the the person who suffered this tragedy in a way that he wasn't really, and and there's a lot of great uh, healing benefit for everyone involved if for him to yeah. s- seem connected, and so he seems connected. Yeah, and he sort of perpetuates and, a lie that um, that allows a bunch of healing and allows him to become the person that he's always thought that he wanted to be. And in a way, the person that we want him to be, we just don't want him to be it that way, but we so want him to become that person. And I think by the end of the show, he does become that person in in a truthful, honest way. But I think it's a real um, examination of a couple of things. Obviously, our incredible isolation and loneliness as a culture right now, especially in a digital age. I think it's an examination of our odd um, need to feel connected to things, particularly tragedies. We were both very inspired uh, for this story because in high school when uh, the 9-11 attacks happened, we remember a lot of people fabricating their own involvement or knowing people that were involved in this great tragedy. You know, I knew friends that made up that they had an uncle who was, you know, in the tower or something. It's crazy things. And it was so interesting to both of us, why was our generation like needing to be a part of something? And at, we sort of have examined like as as we become more isolated than we've ever been before, this excuse to come together as a community by any means necessary is really real and like and to to the find same as community. like you know celebrity deaths and, and why and do people, we you know sharing their story? It's like we're all claiming Robin Williams as our own, but like were you really Robin Williams' biggest fan before he passed away, or like is this a moment that you can? Be noticed and be seen, you know. And then, like both sides are authentic, you know. Like both sides are real. Like it is real that it's like you know what? It's beautiful to have share a tribute about someone and say this was my moment. But it's also a little selfish, you know what I mean? Like, but but the selfish act comes from a genuine need, like a genuine hole somewhere inside of us that needs to be filled. So I think. I think, you know, that makes it sound very, very heavy. <laughs> um, it, it, There's it, lots of comedy, I know, too, I, know, I, mean, I mean, it's it's fun. And look, I mean, we, we have fun with it in the show, and it's it's not just dark. And, you know, our playwright, Stephen Levinson, is, is, is fantastic. And it's a very um, contemporary, um, humorous book. You know what I mean? It feels very indie filmic in a way, I would yeah. say. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's... I hope people come see it, and I hope people enjoy it. But, um, but the, I'm you know, excited about it. I, I've been thinking about like why we wrote this story. And yeah. For me, at least, I think so much of Dogfight, but particularly Evan Hansen, it's like it's about asking a question and trying to get to the answer of that question through the creation of something artistic. So, like, I don't really 
know if I have the answer in myself, but I see a lot of myself in a lot of these characters, and so much of the the plot and the songs have to do with me wrestling with you know my own identity or who I want to be as a human being or why I do the things that are a little dark and weird and scary you know even in my own head and um, getting to explore that in a theatrical way is is exciting so yeah you mentioned working with Stephen so how do you guys work with book writers what's the process there you guys are very tight team yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. well we do all the work and then Stephen just puts <laughs> no actually it's the opposite Stephen does all the work and we just steal his ideas that's what every great songwriter does right is to steal a great don't, great don't tell the truth <laughs> no I mean you know we we you know we love Stephen and we have, we have our sensibilities our artistic sensibilities I think are very aligned our senses of humor are very aligned and and um, we work um, pretty collaboratively. Um, we discussed the, because this is our first original story, our first original musical ever, we spent a very, very long time just developing the idea. Yeah, our, our outline and, and just like the narrative structure was a very, very long process. And it was an idea that we had that we brought to Stephen, but he now, I mean, he owns it. It's really like he, he, he took the good parts of what we were suggesting and made them beautiful and discarded the crappy parts uh, and uh, you know, really created a, an exciting, I think, uh, and compelling uh, narrative. But but we work, you know, really back and forth, uh, pretty fluidly. And we, he'll send us a, you know, we're we're on the phone to him saying, hey, we feel like we need this moment. Like, can you shoot us a monologue for what this character is feeling? Or here's our monologue. Does it seem right for what the, for what we might musicalize? And and um, it's pretty back and forth. Uh, but he's. He's, I mean, it's incredible because he's never written a book in a musical before. Yeah, and, but, and this is a, a really, I think, it's a really, really great uh, book, particularly for a musical. And I think that you, anyone who sees it will just see. He, he really, I think, shines more than we do in, in the in Yeah, no, I mean, I, we felt he, he, he wrote the show. He pretty much did a pass early on once we had done our development as a play. And I read it, we read it, and it was like, this is really beautiful. I don't want to mess this up with songs. <laughs> almost, we were almost like, should this be a musical? This is a really good play. No, you, you know? know what? So then we sort of were like, okay, our job is to just like seamlessly take this from scene into song and back into scene again. And I think hopefully, if if we've achieved something, you know, that's that's what that's what I'm maybe proud of. We'll see, we'll see how you know how it ends up. But like, that it feels I think like that's what we in the same way that our, we our goal is to match his tone. Really, and, and it was to get inside those scenes and just take them into song and take them out of song and make it feel like we never stopped to sing. We never stopped to be like, oh, now they're turning on their musical theater voices and they're doing that, and now we're back on the scene. It's like the it, he's capturing a very contemporary and relevant tone, and I think our we sort of felt it was our job to meet him at that place and in the way that we talk about trying to write songs with one voice now he's our third collaborator I think we're trying to write the show as one voice so you know there's really hopefully a seamlessness between song and scene and it really feels like it all could have come from one mind we're saying a lot of hopefully we hope if there's a lot of that kind of talk because because we're in the middle of rehearsals right now yeah we're hopeful right now (laughs) but wait till tech can good thing you didn't interview us in like three weeks (laughs) I would be on Clonopin. Yeah. Okay, one at a time. Greatest musical theater songwriting team of all time. Just I mean. Oh my gosh. Well, see, uh, this is Don't hard look at each other. Are, you can't consult. No, but see, it's hard because, like, <laughs> can we do... I oh know, I don't even want to do it. Can we do... I was going to ask if we could do, like, not living. Yes, of course. Of all time. Throughout history. 
You could do, you know, Plato for all I care. I mean, songwriting team though. I mean, like the the grandfathers, right? I, mean, I, I would say Rodgers and Hammerstein. Like, I would say, um, I'll say, uh, I'll say, um, well, this, is, this is not not living, but I'll say, uh, fucking hard. Very nice. Very different choices from the two of you. Hey. Uh, so I've been in New York City around long enough now where I've lived through a couple of this is the new generation of musical right. theater. <laughs> so I, you know, We're trying to white so knuckle that title. Like, are you really? <laughs> I, I was, you know, Jason Robert Brown was my vocal coach when I was at NYU oh my gosh, and wow. handed so me cool. a song to sing. Oh, like, oh, you cool. should sing this song, and it was by Andrew Lippa. Like, so I was oh, fun. Yeah, I've yeah. been around that crew. So. Who are your peers? Who is this the group? Your group now? Um, what what is what? Who are who are the people? That, I feel like the both people. You know, it's funny. We're fucking Harnick, Rogers, Sheldon. Yeah, right. He's the coolest cool dude all. Ever. Are you kidding? He's so cool. Um, I mean, well, you know, we actually we have a we're part of this songwriting um, space sort of collective called, sort of thing. called Song Space um, that this wonderful woman Kara Unterberg um, helped create, and so there's a lot of great writers in that. But uh, I would say uh, Chris Miller and Nathan Tyson are writers that we really love. Um, I mean, yeah, who, I mean the people that we, I feel like the the first people I think of are the people that we sh- we all share a workspace together, and and that list of people is Miller and Tyson. It's um, Adam Guan, it's George Stitt, it's um, uh, Brian Lauderbelt and Kate Kerrigan, it's um, Joe Kenosh and, and Kellen Blair, it's Marcin Zena, um, it's and we, we really Jeff love. Uh, and Hunter, oh, yeah. uh, it's keep keep naming everyone. And uh, Kuman Diamond. Yeah, Kuman and Diamond. And we, uh, I guess we so, love Joe we, Iconis's yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, there's, there's a lot, I mean... You share a workspace. Yeah. 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 yeah, that's the coolest thing ever. It's yeah. really, really cool. And we like have a Google Calendar where we say like, oh, you know, are you? There's different rooms that you can rent, and it's 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 great. So uh, it's it's a nice thing, and uh, it's, it's it's really great because it's fostered a sense of community between uh, all of us. So you know, I think we used to look at each other across the room and be like at like weird events and be like, oh, it's those guys. But now you know, when we get frustrated, we sit in the room and complain together about how we can't find you know something that rhymes with orange. You know. <laughs> So 20 years from now, uh, finish this statement. I know I will have had a successful career in the musical theater if... Ken Davenport interviews me again. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Do it for real. Is uh, that for real? Mate, that could have been for real. Uh, I'll give another answer, though. Um, I guess if we get to... This sounds corny, and I'm just thinking of it. I mean, this is not like planned answer because I didn't know you were going to ask this. But I guess if we write stories that feel like they are only things that we could have written. I mean, what I'm really proud of about Dear Evan Hansen and Dogfight and you know things that we're at least trying to put out into the world are things that we feel like, like we're not trying to imitate someone else's style and we're trying to create things that only our weird, demented little minds would have come up with. And if we can kind of find things that feel authentic to us and then because they feel really authentic to us, that translates to uh, to permeate other people's hearts and, and feel uh, true to them, then I guess that's really my goal, um, that we're creating things that feel relevant and that move people, especially particularly in our generation, but that feel new and that, that they're authentically ours. Yeah. And I mean, I guess on a pra- I would agree with that. So I would echo that. And then I'd also say on like a practical sense, like it takes 
so much work and not not for the writers i mean for everyone work and and uh you know confluence of events and people and artists to create a show that plays on broadway and runs on broadway it's like it's magic in a way it's lightning in a bottle i feel like and it, and it and it so rarely happens a show that like works in all those ways that all 120 people or 270 people or however many it is in the orchestra on stage on the crew all the designers that are all speaking the same language at the same time or enough times throughout two and a half hours that a show just works and runs and the audience comes and sees it and comes and sees it again and tells their friends to come and see it i think having a show that actually runs for like you know, a more year. than seven weeks. Right? More than seven weeks. But I mean, like, you know, you think of they're, they're, they're the shows that have that can get out there and be there for a few years. It's like, okay, there's something. There's a, there's a big accomplishment, and you can criticize them, or you can say, oh, it's because of this, that, and the other reason. But the fact is, there's a story being told with songs that people are going to see. They're coming to see it again, and they're telling other people to come see it. So that is a huge accomplishment. It's something that I know that I would love. You know, yeah. in 20 years able to say me and a bunch of other people did that and made that and we pulled it off and it was magic yeah okay last question my james lipton question you ready oh, yes. yes i want you to imagine that the genie from aladdin okay comes to your show song space yeah. right that's what yeah. it's called yeah. Yeah. knocks on the door and says listen you guys have done an amazing job already you such self-starters you des- develop the song cycle yourself you got it here and you've made such contributions already to the music that I want to thank you by granting you one wish, hmm. but just one. What drives you crazy about Broadway? What gets you angry? What keeps you up at night? What gets you so upset that you want this genie to wish it away or to change it with a snap of a finger? That's a good question. That's a great question. I mean, I don't. I don't know there's nothing to I mean the thing that I always think the thing that I always hear people complain about is that it's just too expensive to go to Broadway and so the only audiences that can see it are privileged audiences and we're not we're not bringing in new audiences to see shows Um, the flip side of that is it is so expensive to produce a show on Broadway that the only way often to be able to do pull it off is to charge those prices because if people are willing to pay them you need to charge those prices not just to make money but just to be able to stay open and to keep keep the ship afloat i don't know what uh, I, c- I couldn't wish for something because i don't know what the you well, know i don't know magic, what, i don't know what the solution is. i mean i would echo that as well but i think it starts with even people who have access to musical theater have the privilege to be able to go to school to study musical theater it's a very privileged world to be a part of and i think that we both acknowledge that we have been very privileged to be yeah. a part of that world and to be able to get a BFA in musical theater at the University of Michigan is even at 18 already allows us to be able to think how could I be a music theater writer in ways that I think other people don't have the opportunity to so I think it's about like for me I wish that so many other kinds of stories and kinds of minds that are different than mine were represented and would be able to have access to to see shows the, to write shows yeah. And that we would get wildly different perspectives. And I think that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why Hamilton is so exciting because it's a different perspective for Broadway. And, and, um, you know, we have a friend, Lemon Anderson, who is, uh, who uh, is a poet and has done shows for the public. And like, I know he's talked about how 
some of his own family and friends can't come and see his shows and it's like that's crazy that's crazy yeah. and he you know he has such a different experience he grew up in Brooklyn you know in the in the, in the late 80s and like not enough people have that perspective and like I want to hear that story but there are not enough lemons who are you know being able to create shows so I don't know I would wave a magic wand and and, and make let, it affordable for everyone I mean make it affordable for yeah. patrons but also I mean I, the problem is people who just complain about the price of tickets it's like you have to understand it is so expensive to do this and right. it's such a crazy risk and nine times out of ten you're not more than nine times out of ten you're not going to make your money back anyway so like yes it's lovely to make it affordable for people but they have to charge the ticket prices to right. be able to make money to keep but I mean float, as, but as much as as much as we started like writing you know Edge's song cycle and like people like responded to it I mean like the kinds of problems that we're identifying in Edge's as 19 year old kids are like Really privileged like, problems. I want to realize my dreams. Not yeah, like I want to get through till tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, and I, I want to survive the next week. I just, I think that you know, so many of the people who end up writing and who end up in this industry do come from a level of privilege. And I wish that there was, in the same way that the internet has allowed for democratization of upstarts, you know, I wish that there was sort of a democratization of who was able to um, be be able to create uh, new material and be represented on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about the BFA and musical theater in general being a privileged it is. opportunity. I'd love to see the uh, ratio of sports scholarships to musical theater yeah, scholarships. Yeah, right? No, really. Yeah, totally. That's so great answer. Thank you so much, guys, for Thanks. doing this. Everyone out there, go see Dear Evan Hansen at Second Stage Starts Performances on March 26th, which means you guys got to get the F back to rehearsal right. now. <laughs> see you later, Ken. Uh, check out their website, passingandpaul.com, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Tony Award-winning choreographer Chris Catelli. Yay! Yay! He did Yes, he did. Uh, thanks so much, guys, and we'll see you next time, everybody. Don't forget, if you're listening to this on iTunes, make sure you give the show a big, fat five-star rating and throw in a comment or two as well. Let's get the word out about these great artists that give their time all for you. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.